1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Kevin Ruin. Professor Ruin is Professor of History at Canterbury Christ Church University, and he's a fellow of Churchill College at Cambridge. And today we are discussing his book, written with Matthew Jones, Anthony Eden, Anglo-American Relations and the 1954 Indochina Crisis, published by Bloomsbury. Welcome, Professor.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
2: Well, myself and Matthew had always had a certain fascination for Anthony Eden, uh, British Foreign Secretary before World War II, during World War Two, and then perhaps infamously um, British Prime Minister during the Suez Crisis of 1956, which ended with his ignominious resignation in January 1957. His, his career goes crashing down. And uh, Suez dominates uh, Anthony Eden's career, um, life, and reputation. But we had got to know a different Anthony Eden because of our research interests and that was the Eden that existed before the Suez crisis and we we felt that this guy needed uh, maybe a little bit of rehabilitation that history is uh, is lived forwards not uh, not backwards and we didn't want to magic this Suez crisis out of out of existence but we did want to go back in time a little bit to look at Eden maybe in the 1930s and the 40s and even the 50s after the Suez crisis because we felt that this was a brilliant international statesman he was a man of peace a man of collective security and he had many great achievements to his name not least perhaps the jewel in the crown of his achievements was his role in helping broker a peace settlement uh in vietnam in 1954 or to do with the french war in Indochina, obviously including Vietnam, that really was um, an outstanding achievement. And so we felt that um, what had happened in 1956 at Suez had kind of cast a retrospective blight over everything that Anthony Eden had done. And sure, Suez was a spectacular disaster, but we really felt that uh, Eden, Eden deserved to be remembered for other things as well. And since both Matthew and I were Southeast Asian specialists, we are also, um, in our different ways, nuclear historians. We really latched onto that 1954 episode, this this uh, this great achievement we felt of, of Anthony Eden, and we wanted to do it an Eden full justice. So that's how we we really came to the topic we never set out to deal with the Suez crisis per se we just wanted to remind people that there was another Anthony Eden out there although having said that um, Suez inevitably intrudes towards the end of the book where we try and work out a little bit as to what went wrong there since everything seemed to go right in 1954.
1: Why write another book on the Indochina crisis particularly in the light of the book that was written usually it's regarded as being the standard Uh, study of the topic uh, by Sir James Cable
2: well Sir James Cable's reputation is not um, entirely free of criticism I would say Um, I met James Cable many years ago I interviewed him during my own doctoral research and I think it's important to remember that Cable although the book is small and compact and actually a brilliant read in many ways it can't be considered in its 125 pages or however long it is um, anything like an exhaustive treatment of this subject. And also, there's a duality to what James Cable was about that James Cable became a historian of the final phase of the French War in Indochina. But he was also a participant, so he's kind of a participant scholar. He was head of, or he's a member of the Southeast Asia Department of the Foreign Office in 1954, and he was present at the Geneva Conference, which sees uh, Eden do his thing, Eden bring about this peace settlement. So we really didn't think that uh, Cable was the last word on it, nor did Cable for that matter, because in his own book he said that this crisis, this event, the Geneva Conference and uh, its international dimensions was something that really did require periodic revisitation. And so we revisited it. And um, we, uh, we do nod to James Cable, but, but we never felt that James Cable was the be-all and end-all of this topic.
1: One of the b- points that your book makes, which is novel, is the fact that British policy during the crisis was motivated by the fear of uh, thermonuclear war. If that is the case in the, in, in, for Sir Anthony Eden, um, why was he opposed to Churchill's uh, summit uh, policy, meaning Churchill's, uh, uh, Churchill's um, wish to have a summit with the Soviet leadership post Stalin, uh, March of nineteen fifty-three, which Eden was—I wouldn't say violently, but uh, sternly—opposed to.
2: Well, I think there's uh, there's two things going on there, really. If I could begin with the uh, the first one, uh, the nuclear dimension of nineteen fifty-four. I think um, you, you called it novel, which is which is kind. I mean, it has been touched on, but I think ours is the first really focused, concentrated, bespoke treatment of this crisis in and to do with Vietnam as a as a nuclear crisis, and more specifically a thermonuclear crisis. These awful weapons of destruction really came into the world from about 1952-53 onwards. And when Vietnam heats up, if you like, um, goes critical as a crisis in the spring of 54, uh, the world is really very, very agitated by the emergence of this, uh, this appalling thing, this hydrogen bomb, the, the thermonuclear weapon. And uh, even conservative estimates of the power of this weapon are suggesting that it could be 500 times, maybe 1,000 times as powerful in its destructive yield as the mere atomic bombs that were used against Japan in 19. 19- 45. So we're talking about a serious ratcheting up of, of destructiveness. But more than that, um, in the lead up to 1954 and in the spring of 54 itself, uh, almost contemporaneous with the, the crisis in Indochina, um, the world learns properly about something called fallout, you know, poisonous, toxic, radioactive death clouds that can that can carry the death factor, if if that's the term, um, hundreds of miles potentially on the wind, on the breeze, from the destination point of a hydrogen bomb. And so the combination of a little bit of H-bomb hysteria, more than a little bit of H-bomb hysteria in the spring of 54, particularly in Western Europe and Britain, allied to a recognition of fallout as a phenomenon, really has, in the case of the British government, that's the government of Winston Churchill, conservative government, that came back in 1951, it really has a a salutary effect on them. And the way we put it in the book is to um, remind our readers that in 1954, Soviet long-range bombers that could carry Soviet nuclear weapons and Soviet H-bombs had the, um, the capacity to reach Western Europe and the UK which itself was home to American um, air bases, those Soviet aircraft could reach Britain and Western Europe, but they did not have the range at this point to reach North America, which to Eden, to the British government, and to Winston Churchill, pro-American as he was, this meant that if that crisis in Vietnam escalated into an Asian-wide war, and that in turn escalated into a, general war maybe world war three it would be britain and western europe not the united states necessarily that felt the full heat and fury of soviet thermonuclear retaliation and we argue very strongly and, and i hope persuasively that you know it was going to take something pretty spectacular to make winston churchill of all people not just stand up to the united states not just dissociate his, his, his government's policy from the United States, but actually to, to back a plan led by Eden to thwart the United States, to prevent U.S. military action in Vietnam. So that's the, the nuclear side of it. You asked as well about um, Eden's attitude towards uh, Churchill's summitry, and a lot's been written about that, and, uh, and, and we deal with that in the book. That there's no There's no escaping it. I think in the first instance, when Stalin dies in March 1953, um, Eisenhower and the Americans are against a top-level summit. And Eden, at that point, is very keen to keep in with the United States. He doesn't want to go harder or faster than the Americans are prepared to go. Churchill, however, is and has been throughout his career a great believer in personal diplomacy. I think Churchill is aware in 1953. He's nearly 80. that time is not on his side. I think Churchill in 1953 going on into fifty four so has a sense of himself as um, you know surviving member of the wartime big three he's got a unique um contribution to make you know he's also driven by a pretty big ego as well and a sense of his um and um, 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 role in history and his sense of destiny and he is inclined to go sometimes rogue sometimes solo in pushing um, his own mission to Moscow a top level summit by the time you get into 1954, um, Eden is certainly restraining Churchill because Eisenhower and the Americans are not for a top-level summit. They are more interested in trying to test the waters of the new Soviet leadership at a foreign minister level, which of course happens to be the Anthony Eden level. So Eden is a break. He is um, a restraint, but he's doing it partly because he doesn't want to get out of sync with the americans he's doing it partly as well because he really fears that churchill who's who's no longer at his absolute wartime best now he he's you know age is and and health are beginning to undermine his powers a little bit. I think Eden fears that Churchill, if he met the new Soviet leaders across the table, might have a sort of emotional spasm to solve the Cold War, give too much away. Um, so I think Eden is motivated by those kinds of things. But there's no doubt that when we talk about Anthony Eden, we are talking about one of the vainest politicians that Britain has produced over the years. That's not to say that he wasn't excellent in in other ways as well, but he was. He he did suffer from a great deal of personal vanity. And I think there is something in the argument that uh, he also restrained Churchill a little bit because uh, he hoped that if a foreign minister's approach rather than a leader's approach was agreed upon, that he himself would enjoy a good chunk of the limelight
1: what was Foreign Office policy towards the Indochina War upon uh, Anthony Eden's return to the Foreign Office in October 1951?
2: Well, I think that uh, the British want the French to prevail in Indochina. And you know, Vietnam is the cockpit. So, but, but we're also talking about Laos and Cambodia to some extent. So when Eden and the Conservatives, Churchill, come back in late 51. And the policy is to support the French. Why wouldn't the British support the French in in that war? Um, For one thing, Britain itself is a kind of Southeast Asian nation still. There's a residual um, imperial uh, uh, legacy that um, Eden inherits. Britain has got a lot of economic and strategic interests in the Southeast Asian area, whether it's Malaya, which is um one of the biggest producers of natural rubber and, and, and tin and, and a great boom to the British economy at this point. Uh the Singapore, there's Borneo, the Sarawak, and of course what is called the uh, the Far East in at least in the fifties in fifties in terminology if you're standing in London, is for Australia and New Zealand the near north and Britain is also there for um, under Churchill and interested in Southeast Asia because of that, you know, intimate Commonwealth connection with Australia and New Zealand, and I think the British, although they never use the term domino effect, um, are fearful that if the French somehow come a cropper in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia will go, and the next thing you know, Thailand will go, Siam as it was then, and this and this uh, communist tide will heads southwards, it'll then knock on the door of or or penetrate Malaya and Singapore's in trouble and and so on and so forth. So Britain has um, good reasons of its own, in terms of its own interests, uh, to support the French in their war against the communist-led Viet Minh. But equally, France is a key ally of the UK in Europe, in Western Europe, within NATO, and I think the British are being concern for some time before Eden and Churchill come back, that this war in Indochina has been rather draining uh, France and impairing its ability to to, uh, contain, if you like, or or play its role in the containment of Soviet communism in Western Europe. So I think the British want the French to prevail. They'd like them to get on and and win as quickly as possible. Um, But uh, over the next two to three years, the British will find that uh, putting any kind of pressure on the French to fight harder, to adopt a more aggressive strategy, a forward strategy is going to be met with uh, French requests for all kinds of British help that the British are neither able nor actually inclined to give them.
1: When exactly did the Foreign Office give up on the idea of a French victory, military victory in Indochina?
2: Well, I think by late 1953, early 1954, It's becoming evident to Anthony Eden and the Foreign Office and all those specialists he has around him who are monitoring this situation that the French in Vietnam, no matter how hard they are currently fighting, can't fight any harder without more manpower. And the problem is no French government by this stage is going to send from metropolitan France, overseas to Indochina, the kind of manpower necessary to boost the French expeditionary force. And the reason for that is, I mean, there are French troops in Western Europe, in France, in Germany that could be sent, but no French government wants to send more troops at this stage to Southeast Asia because that risks France being a smaller contributor to a European army construct that's just emerging. It's been emerging in 1952, 53 and 54 uh, European army. It's called the European defense community. So, the British think the French should send more troops to Indochina to do the job, to overwhelm their enemy with numbers. The French feel they've sent about as many as they can send, because if they send any more, there's a danger that Western Germany will end up contributing more troops to this European defence community than France. And that is simply psychologically um, stressful and unthinkable, I think, for for France. This is only nine years after 1945. It's 14 years after 1940. So I think the British begin to rationalise if the French can't do what's necessary to win and are locked into static defence because they don't have enough manpower and static defence means waiting to be hit and when they're hit, public opinion in France takes another nosedive. Probably, we're looking now, a compromise settlement something that ends the war on a basis that both sides communist and non-communist can live with so it's around about that time i'd say january february 1954 that the british shift from hoping and wanting a french victory to trying to think about a settlement that would give british interests some security um And which would end the war that the French can no longer win. But if the French continue to fight it on the negative basis they are, they could end up losing it.
1: In fact, uh, the policy of partition.
2: Ah, yes. um, When I say it didn't come across very very clearly, you were definitely clear in your question. It's just uh, the line. Um, Partition, yeah, you know. Um, think about partition is it being, it, it's kind of a, almost a default Cold War solution to difficult problems. Uh, Korea was effectively partitioned in 1945 at the end of the war against, uh, Japan. Germany is de facto partitioned when you think about it. And I think the British reasoned, Eden reasoned that given the strength of Ho Chi Minh, and the Viet forces, particularly in the northern half of Vietnam, that if there was to be any compromise settlement, it would probably be on the basis of partition, a communist north, a non-communist south. And to say that that was uh, beyond the pale as a diplomatic solution, well, there were precedents, as I've said, So you've got the British early 1954 thinking there might need to be compromise. I don't think the French can win if there's compromise, there's going to be partition. But Eden was not particularly happy about partition. Why would he be? Because that really is to surrender people and territory to communism at a time when Britain buys into the Cold War or the the American-led Cold War concept of, of containment of communism, containment of communism doesn't normally involve giving things away to, to communism so although Eden lands on a solution, the British lands on, on a solution in the early part of 1954 it's not one that they've got any great enthusiasm for but it's a card they think that they may end up having to play if circumstances dictate it and circumstances will dictate that
1: Now why did Eden change a policy and agree to a um conference at Geneva
2: Eden changes his mind about partition partition was the solution he was agnostic about um, if you like he becomes a convert to partition as a solution for one simple reason it's not simple it's complex but comparatively simple reason it's that US policy develops in a way that deeply troubles Eden and Churchill and the British government. At the end of March 1954, the Eisenhower administration um, announces that with the French now in trouble at the make-or-break Battle of Dien Bien Phu in northwest Vietnam, close to Laos, that began on the 13th of March 1954. At the end of March 1954, the US government announced its crisis management solution. It was a thing that John Foster Dulles, the US Secretary of State, called United Action. It was um, an American led military coalition to be made up of the United States, France, obviously, which is already there, um, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and a number of friendly or pro American Asian states, uh, the Philippines, uh, for example, possibly uh, uh, Thailand. So um, this United Action Coalition would intervene militarily in Vietnam to buttress the French, to bolster their morale, and to keep what uh, Eisenhower in, in early April 1954, um, he coined you know, the domino effect in a, in a news statement. Um, United Action, this coalition will intervene to prop up what has now become seen in Washington as the trigger domino of Southeast Asia. The British government, and it's not just Eden, it's also Churchill, who is four square behind Eden on this, see united action in the most baleful negative terms. Because what the British fear is that if there is US or US-led intervention in Vietnam, that will prompt communist Chinese counter-intervention on the model of Korea in 1950. That, in turn, may well, might well, have encouraged the Eisenhower administration to do what the Eisenhower administration told the British they intended to do if there was ever another set to China, and that is not to meet Chinese aggression at the point of local engagement, but to target China directly, to blockade all China's major ports, and to use The new look, the Eisenhower National Security Strategy, the nuclear-laden new look to target all China's military installations around the country with nuclear weapons. Well, the British fear that that scenario, U.S.-led intervention, Chinese counter-intervention, U.S. nuclear response against China will then bring the Russians in. The Russians are allies of China. The sino soviet pact was signed in 1950. But the Russians, the British believe, will not come in in Southeast Asia. They will help China by sending Russian long-range nuclear bombers to Western Europe, to France, and across the English Channel to Britain, particularly American air bases in East Anglia, but taking London out along the way. And for Stephen and Churchill, the thought of just a handful of hydrogen bombs Getting through to the UK, well, it was almost apocalyptic in its potentialities. It was going to be the, the end of all, of all things. And the British are very mindful at this point that those Russian bombers can reach the UK, but they can't reach the USA. So the unwanted or the agnosticly framed solution partition to Vietnam suddenly becomes, almost on the eve of the Geneva Conference for Eden, and Churchill's behind him, the wanted solution. Because if you can have a conference, and there is one due to be held on Indochina at Geneva at the end of April, if you can have a conference and you get a solution out of that, you end the war. If you end the war, you end the rationale for U.S. intervention, you end the rationale for U.S. intervention, you end the danger of a wider war with thermonuclear dimensions and and the horror show that the the British are are, are contemplating. So the way you put it in the book is that uh, in 1954, while the UK was pretty keen on containing international communism, but at a weird level, it was also kind of interested in containing the United States.
1: I think in the book you refer to it as double containment.
2: Yeah, double or, or dual containment um, it was a kind of precursor to that. Um, you know, um, I think the United States, for example, historians have have looked at this and studied this. The United States was involved for some years before this in dual containment. That is wanting to somehow keep down the old enemy Germany by basically tying it into Western structures, military and political or or economic. And um, so keeping down the old enemy and keeping out the new enemy from Western Europe, the Soviet Union. So the British... um, a light on a variation, um, and it's a variation the Americans don't like it. <laughs> they don't like it very much, but the, the British variation is, um, um, uh, or the duality in the British mind is to, um, is to certainly contain China and the Soviet Union to the greatest extent possible, but not at the risk of World War III, which could see the end of the UK as a going concern. So contain communism, but in a way, contain America from using its unprecedented nuclear power in ways that could trigger maybe an unnecessary global conflagration.
1: Now, has the recent scholarship of the last 25, 30 years given us some um, uh, enlightenment as to what would have been uh, Chinese or, or for that matter, Soviet uh, reactions to American military intervention in Indochina?
2: well there's a there's a little oddity to to all this. It was Britain's fear of what might happen if the war went on and this Geneva Conference failed to settle it on the basis of partition so so the british it was the British fear of some follow on nuclear Disaster that drives British diplomacy to really break rank with the United States, to set out to thwart the United States and American policy choices, and in the end to arguably successfully thwart those. So, so, so uh, uh, those policies. So, so the British are very uh, driven by this this nuclear fear. But what we now know um, on the communist side thanks to the work amongst uh, 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 other organisations of the Cold War International History Project, Woodrow Wilson Centre, is that the Chinese were deeply troubled at the prospect of the war not being settled, the war going on, the Americans intervening on the side of the French and indeed targeting China with nuclear weapons. It just so happened that the Chinese had tough deep, deep, deep into this Geneva conference, these international negotiations that go on through April, May, June, into July 1954. But in the end, the Chinese will settle for a compromise, largely on the basis that Eden and the British wanted, and the Chinese will themselves put great pressure on the Viet Minh Delegation, the Democratic Republic of, China, of, of Vietnam, as it's formerly known, the DRV representatives at Geneva, put great pressure on them to accept a compromise, the compromise that emerges in July 1954, because the Chinese, we can now see, are deeply troubled by the prospect of what might happen if the war went on. The Russians, their angle is very interesting. Um, we've got evidence on that side now, that's accumulated over the years. Um, What you find is that at the Geneva conference, Anthony Eden is the chair of that conference, which begins in late April 54. But the co-chair is Vyacheslav Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister. And the next two or three months at Geneva, as Eden goes around doing his peacemongering, he and Molotov work pretty well, pretty closely together. That's not to say that Eden's soft on communism. But he recognizes that Molotov and the Soviets want exactly what Britain and Eden want, which is an end to this war and therefore an end to the risk of U.S. intervention and an escalatory process, which if the Chinese get dragged in, Molotov and the Soviets know damn well, they are then going to probably be sucked in. That's kind of what happens. It's the dynamic of these hideous events. And so you do have this really odd anomaly of Anthony Eden working closer with his ostensible Cold War enemy, Molotov, and the Soviets, than he does remotely with his Cold War ally, the United States, and in particular U.S. Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. So, I think the nuclear dimension does penetrate the communist bloc in significant ways and helps to bring about a compromise that will end that war. But that's us being wise after the event. We've got hindsight and insight into the Soviet bloc. Um, Eden didn't have that at the time.
1: In fact, didn't Eden um, jokingly refer to himself as being inside right, Molotov, inside left? Uh, United States outside right, Uh, communist China outside left.
2: Yeah, um, I don't know um, how much you follow um, uh, football, um, uh, British style football as opposed to American football. But um, yeah, um, Eden knew very little about football, but um, Molotov, um, Eden was advised by his advisors, was a great football lover. I think he was a great supporter of Dynamo Moscow or something like that. And so Eden ever looking for new diplomatic angles, uh, did encounter Molotov, as you say, on one occasion. And he's basically saying, look, Molotov, um, me and you are in the centre of the the field here. We're in the centre of the pitch. Um, Admittedly, um, I'm inside right and you're inside left. But, you know, we are in the centre circle together. We can reach compromises. We can talk to each other. Um, you, You don't like capitalism. I don't like communism. But, you know, some things transcend those ideologies, like Let's not have World War III. So they are able to communicate like that. But the problem is, as Eden points out, I've got something on my right wing and you've got something on your left wing. We're on the inside. But you've got China, which is volatile, difficult to predict, sometimes difficult to control, and wishing at Geneva 1954 its first ever real international outing since the PRC was born in 1949, to assert itself. And I've got the United States, which seems to my mind to be rattling its nuclear sabre, seems to be driven by domestic policies into adopting very hostile, aggressive, uncompromising foreign policy positions. So let's me and you work in the middle and see if we can then bring our two extreme wings into some kind of uh, compromise as well. But let's me and you hold the centre
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Now, would it be correct to say that uh, Sir Roger Macins, the British ambassador in uh, Washington D.C.'s, failures as an interpreter of British policy to Dulles and and uh, Foreign Office policy to um, uh, I'm sorry, Dulles policy um, to uh, the Foreign Office helped to cause the disagreements between London and Washington in the crisis?
2: Yeah, Roger Makins uh, took up the British um, ambassadorship in, I think, the start of 1953. Um, he goes on to become Lord Sherfield, but uh, this time Roger Makins. Very experienced uh, Foreign Office uh, career uh, Foreign Service member. Um, very respected, but there is No question. Uh, The evidence is there. We accumulate it, Matthew and I, that when it comes to the crisis, I think that Matins as ambassador exceeds his contracted uh, or job specification, if you like, that he takes it upon himself to be, I don't know, the the go-between his boss, Eden, when really he ought to be just doing whatever Eden says, He'd go between, between Anthony Eden and the US Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. He adopts that role. It's a very personal role because Eden and Dulles have already fallen out quite spectacularly uh, in 1951 and 1952. They just don't get on. There's a degree of respect, I think, but they just don't get on. And I think there's suspicion on both sides. There is questioning and doubting uh, the sincerity of, of you know, Eden has doubts going towards Dallas, Dallas back the other way. And so Roger Macon possibly from the best of intentions, tries to pass Eden's advice to the Americans in a way that will make it more palatable to the Americans, and coming the other way occasionally seems to hint to the British that um, American policy is more reasonable and meanable than Eden, perhaps suffering from an anti-Dulles spasm of prejudice believes it to be but Eden susses him out basically um, early on in the crisis, and um, you, you have a you have a Point in, in British diplomatic history where uh, the Foreign Secretary, I think, has, has really lost faith in his ambassador in Washington as an interpreter of British policy. But I uh, don't be really too hard on making it. I think he did it for the best possible reasons. But really, in retrospect, he should have just stuck to his job spec.
1: Why do you appear to believe that Anthony Eden was not fond at fault in the Easter weekend contra over pre-Geneva defence planning?
2: Well, I don't think we, we say he's not at fault at all. Um, for your your listeners, um, the, there was a, a Dulles visit to London in mid-April 1954 um, for two days of talks with the British because the, the Americans knew, I think, that if They could persuade the British, Eden, and Churchill behind him, to join in united action, this coalition. The chances were that Australia and New Zealand would join in for reasons of Commonwealth solidarity. And then you've really got yourself something significant. Uh, The Americans, of course, uh, have just come out of the Korean War, a searing experience, 33,000 American dead in three years in that war and there's a lot of popular and congressional and indeed administration resentment that the Korean War, which was meant to be a free world operation, a UN operation, really saw the Americans do most of the paying, the dying and the and, and, and the suffering, the fighting, if you like. And so now we've got a new crisis, um, United Action. I think the Americans are really keen on genuine burden-sharing this time. Eisenhower wants that, Dulles wants that. And they believe if they get the British on board, they'll get Australia and New Zealand on board, and the French are already there. So it's it important that um, they get they get the British in, in line, first of all. That's why Dulles makes this visit to, to London. Um, and there is a huge misunderstanding um, emerges from two days of talks because Dulles goes home believing that Eden has agreed that there can be almost immediate planning for a Southeast Asian NATO, what becomes CETO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Uh, there can be almost immediate planning uh, ahead of the start of this international conference at Geneva, immediate planning on an Asian NATO. and. Um, Eden's, Eden claims or claimed, that he had given no green light to immediate planning. He, in principle, agreed there needed to be an Asian NATO, but he did not want overt planning to be going ahead before the start of the Geneva conference because it would look provocative, maybe even aggressive to the Chinese, who might not bother to go to this international conference, and so the whole thing would collapse. We try and evaluate um, the evidence on both sides. But there's no doubt that there was this monumental misunderstanding. Dulles, when he hears that Eden is backing out of wanting to be part of pre-Geneva military planning, turns to his sister, Eleanor, and he says, he lied to me. Eden is saying more or less the same thing to some of his officials that Dulles willfully misinterpreted me. These guys are just not getting on. And their personal animus really adds, I think, a complication and a level of danger, actually, to the crisis, which was already pretty dangerous and complex in its in its own right. And he, he said that we, that we come down on Eden's side. I think we might come down slightly on Eden's side, but maybe not as definitively as, um, as you suggest.
1: Wasn't Eden criticized by some of his foreign policy, I'm sorry, foreign office advisors like uh, Evelyn Chuck Borg and uh, Roger Allen for being uh, anti-American, at least in the context of the crisis, not overall, of course.
2: Um, I think that uh, Dennis Allen, even Shuckborough, people like that who are close to Eden, um, some of them really take Gullis' side on what was agreed or not agreed in London. Equally, the head of the foreign, the permanent undersecretary, the top civil servant in the in the, in the foreign office, Ivon Kirkpatrick, for example, was totally on Eden's side. So, so I think you know when we we weren't able to make much progress there. We thought that um, it was rather evenly balanced. But once you get into the subsequent Geneva negotiations, there were some on the British side below Eden, like Shuckburgh and Dennis Allen, who felt that. He was not only behaving or allowing, let's say, his deep mistrust of the United States, his sense that the United States was a rival as much as an ally, and and, and then, of course, his personal animus towards Dallas to actually negatively influence the way he was going about his business and particularly his attitude to America. They weren't just concerned about that. The flip side of it was that they were, really concerned with how close and pally he seemed to be with the person that Shuckbrook called in his diary Auntie Mole, which of course was was Molotov. And I think it's true that you do have a counterpoise between Eden on the one hand who fully understood the importance to Britain of close harmonious relations with the United States. He fully understood that uh, Britain's security, not to say its economic well-being, was so closely tied to the United States. Eden Eden got all that, and yet at the same time, he never succumbed to the the rather more romanticized, Churchillian view of the special relationship. He really felt that um, if American interests were at all threatened by the UK, whether they were economic or strategic, the United States would probably have little compunction in Bulldozing Britain and his own interests aside. So he wanted to work with the Americans, but he he had, going back decades, a significant level of suspicion towards US policy. Churchill, on the other hand, was more default mode, likely to give the United States the benefit of the doubt. To the greatest extent possible, he wished at all points to accommodate America, to be supportive of America. And yet the nuclear dimension that I alluded to a few minutes ago um, really in 1954 for Winston Churchill sets the limits for how far this pro-American Churchill would go in order to uphold the special relationship. The prospect of Indochina blowing up, Asian war, world war, and then the end of British life on these islands, as he would have called them, um, really did set the limit on how far even Churchill was prepared to go at this point. My thoughts are almost entirely thermonuclear, he confided at one point in this this crisis. So I think there's an interesting contrast between Eden and Churchill there. The really big takeaway, though, is that Churchill, the emotionalist, the uh, romanticist when it comes to America, was really... Four square behind Eden and his diplomacy of compromise at Geneva pretty much all the way through
1: Do you um, state I think you state in the book that uh, you adhere to the view that there was in fact a genuine British veto over American policy in terms of military intervention into China unlike some scholars like uh, Billings Young who argue that in fact the British veto was uh, something which Eisenhower employed um, merely to get out of the pressure for military intervention.
2: Yeah, it's, it's well, I don't know about readers, but we found it a fascinating micro episode in in this in this in this major crisis. By the way, I should just underscore the the quality of this crisis, that we, we we genuinely believe. We don't just believe; we believe the evidence allows us to believe. But that had things gone differently in 1954, we might be talking about 1954 in the way you talk about Cuba '62, uh, the sort of war scare of uh, 1973 during the Yom Kippur War, maybe even stuff in the Reagan era, Abel Archer, as one of the great, frightening potential nuclear showdown moments of the of the Cold War, of the Cold War um, era. So it was a pretty major uh, crisis. As to uh, the argument amongst historians that uh, you allude to, um, there are historians. Melanie Billings-Young, quite some years ago now, um, suggested that um, after the Korean War, which had cost America so much in blood, particularly but also treasure, Eisenhower, when it comes to 1954 and most of those around him, really, really did not want to get involved in another land war in Asia. Except that Eisenhower and the Republicans had won in November 52 by promising to um, roll back the communist tide to move beyond the passive containment policy of the Democrats um, to, to you know, almost, if you like, know, win, the, win the Cold War. So when 1954 comes along, within nine months of the end of the Korean War, um, Bill John amongst others, they are, they are a minority, um, s- spin this kind of thesis that says that um, Eisenhower really, really, really didn't want to send U.S. troops and uh, the US Air Force and Navy into battle in Vietnam in 1954. But equally, America could not do nothing in the face of the prospect of a French collapse, all of Vietnam going and the dominoes falling. And so, what Eisenhower did was Eisenhower, according to this thesis, he came up with a number of conditions for US military action. But the conditions that he came up with and made public were on the face of it completely reasonable, i.e. we should have allies, proper burden sharing, but in reality, according to this, I have to say, bunker thesis, um, Eisenhower came up with uh, conditions that he knew were unfulfillable. One of those was British support. Eisenhower knew, according to John, he was not going to get British support, but he makes it a key condition. Guess what? You don't get British support. Therefore, there's no united action. There's disunited inaction. Either goes its way. There's compromise, there's partition, and, and, and all and all the rest of it. Who gets the blame for the loss of Northern Vietnam? Well, it's the British for being craven, compromisers, and appeasers, and uh, there's Munich on the Mekong and all those kind of things. Well, that's the thesis. Matthew and I, we weighed the evidence. We we, we went through you know, mountain ranges of evidence and. Our conclusion was that Eisenhower does come up with conditions for united action, conditions for intervention in the spring of 1954. But these aren't ruses or tricks or Machiavellianism. These are real conditions. And one condition is we want allied support and we want British support in the first instance. And if Eisenhower wasn't serious about those conditions, we asked rhetorically in the book, why he tried so very, very, very hard to get Churchill, for example, in his correspondence with Churchill, to buy into united action. If, according to the other thesis, yes, you don't want any of this to happen, why try so hard? There's a point in early April where Eisenhower writes a letter to Winston Churchill, and it's almost as if he... He'd done some kind of psychological profile of Winston Churchill and worked out what all the things were that you should say to Winston Churchill to get him to agree with you. And he ends the letter by saying, Winston, we we failed, as you well know, to act in time against Hitler and Hirohito and Mussolini, and that ushered in. Years of stark tragedy. Let us learn that lesson from the past. Let's, let's, let's not make those mistakes again. You know, Churchill prided himself on being the visionary of the mid to late thirties in seeing Hitler for what Hitler was in being an anti-appeaser. Eisenhower knew that. And yet Churchill still says no. He won't agree to united action and by the way i, I did find it interesting that um, during the Suez crisis eden is um, is accused of confusing accused by the americans and eisenhower of um um uh, equating general Nassau, colonel Nasser in egypt with hitler but yet there we are eisenhower early april 1954 letter to churchill ho chi minh isn't just Hitler, Ho Chi Minh is Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito rolled into one.
1: Why do you believe there was a connection between the British decision in June 1954 to develop the H-bomb and the Indochina crisis?
2: Yeah, at first sight, um, if you were my doctoral Um, examiner looking at my thesis you might be saying ha ha we've got you now with a fatal contradiction here don't we? On the one hand you've said that the British were terrified by the hydrogen bomb fearful of thermonuclear war and that this is what impelled the British to break rank with the Americans not just break rank with the Americans to stand up to the Americans to thwart the Americans even at the cost of significant damage to the special relationship on the one hand you argue that But on the other hand, here we have June 1954, absolutely smack bang in the middle of this crisis, Winston Churchill chairing something called the Defence Policy Committee in top secret in Whitehall. That committee, chaired by the Prime Minister, but with the Chiefs of Staff and all the other key figures in the government around the table, they agree that Britain, which in 1952 became an atomic bomb power, should go on to build a thermonuclear weapon of its own. There should be a British H-bomb. How can you reconcile Churchill, on the one hand, fearful of thermonuclear war, and that drives British diplomacy towards Indochina, and yet there, in the middle of it all, let's have a British hydrogen bomb. Well, the conventional view of why the British go for an H-bomb is, um, or nuclear historians will will tell you, is partly it's a status symbol that, you know, Britain is an A-bomb power, but America and Russia have got hydrogen bombs by this stage. So Britain, if it has any pretension still to be a great power, and Churchill, I think, really does want it to be not the greatest power, but still a pretty great power, you need a hydrogen bomb. It's a status symbol. In addition, an H-bomb, who could deny that it wouldn't add a little? extra something to your own national deterrent but if you look at the records if you look at the minutes of that defense policy committee and look at the argument that Churchill advances for why britain should have a hydrogen bomb he is um he doesn't use the term but he's really arguing in terms of this dual containment thing we need a hydrogen bomb to be strong because we've got a nasty cold war enemy out there called the soviet union but he says we need a hydrogen bomb so that our views and advice and thinking, an approach to international matters is taken seriously or more seriously in Washington. The Americans respect power. The ultimate power is the hydrogen bomb. Britain needs to be a member of the global H-bomb club if it is to be taken seriously in the USA when, as during the 1954 crisis, it is trying to caution the Americans, to restrain the Americans, to persuade the Americans not to follow a course that the British believe is incendiary. To be taken seriously by the Americans in a future crisis, Britain needs to be tooled up with the H-bomb.
1: In his private diary, uh, Evelyn Shuckburgh <clears throat> notes that the Chinese refer to Eden as the, quote, king of the conference, unquote. What were the special diplomatic qualities that Eden possessed which made the Chinese uh, give the, give him this accolade
2: well it's not just the the Chinese um, uh, after the Geneva Conference ends on the twenty first of July he is fated in France um, the Russians are very approving of him he is uh he is so he's he's kind of heroized in uh western europe he wins various peace uh, he wins various accolades and international prizes and, and the young queen elizabeth the second not so young now as we speak but she was there a year or so a year and a half into her reign she admits him to the order of the data one of the most prestigious orders um, and and in, in 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 british life british public um life so um i think the thing that is recognized is that eden sought through patient diplomacy to keep this conference going against the odds week after week after week. Remember, it began on the 26th of April, 1954. It ends on the 21st of July. That's a long old time. There was a fortnight recess in the middle of it. But most of that time, he is dealing with a crisis. And he is dealing with a crisis because uniquely at Geneva, he is the one person that can speak to everybody. He talks to the Viet Minh. He talks to the Chinese. He talks to the Russians. He's obviously talking to the Americans and the French, and to others. But the United States, in the form of John Foster Dulles, at least to start with, will not speak or meet or certainly shake hands with Zhou Enlai because America does not recognize China. And so the Americans, and Dulles actually literally turned his back at one stage on on the Chinese. How can you negotiate if you won't even talk to people? But Eden is talking to everybody. Um, Equally, the French, for a long time, aren't talking to the DRB, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, and the Viet Minh at, at Geneva, because that would be a betrayal of the non-communists in, in Vietnam. But Eden is able to do that. So um, Eden is, it's, it's not that Eden is not ideological. He is anti-communist. But he thinks that some things transcend ideology, and one of those things is avoiding World War Three. This is a man who joined the British Army in 1915. He was only 18 years of age and saw the horror of the trench warfare on the western front. He was decorated for bravery and like so many survivors of that first world war horror who went on into public life to serve, that was the great reference point. Um, the fear of a conflict comparable to that. Of course, fearing a conflict as great as World War I didn't prevent another one coming along, but Eden is a First World War veteran. He has seen the failure of international diplomacy in the 1930s, producing yet another World War, and now you're in a Cold War, and Eden's pretty keen to keep the Cold War cold. A hot war could be the end of all things, He has a talent for negotiation. He has an instinct for compromise. He um, has great charm. He has uh, the ability to bring people together. Even Chakra admits he was just really good at this stuff. The problem is that the Americans, John Foster Dulles, the United States generally are not approving of what Eden is doing at Geneva. Probably, to put it crudely but not inaccurately, the United States, we feel, probably hoped that Geneva would fail because if it failed, the war would go on. If the war went on, that gave the Americans the opening to try once more the military solution, which Eden had managed to prevent them applying in order to give Geneva a chance. Eden, by the same token, wants to make Geneva work Because that will end the war, and that will end the chance of American intervention and a wider war. But of course, partition, even though Eden was a bit iffy about it at the start with, partition, which becomes the final solution to the diplomatic impasse, is seen by the Americans and is portrayed by the Eisenhower administration after the conference as a significant surrender. Eden is fated in many places, but he's not fated as the king of the conference in America. As a result of the fact that partition surrenders half the country and its people and territory to communism. So even was good at what he did, but what he was good at doing at Geneva was never going to endear him to the United States at this point in its Cold War experience.
1: On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
2: Thank you very much.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?